1: Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is a podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a self-taught chef who cooks to the beat, Of his own kitchen timer. He shares his experience winning Food Network Star, what it means to be a culinary rule breaker, and what he's been up to in South Dakota. He's a cookbook author, restaurant owner, Food Network Star winner, and in the pursuit of becoming a genuine bon vivant. It's Justin Warner. Justin, welcome to Food Network Obsessed. And before we dive into all things Food Network, I do have a question that I've actually been wondering about for a while. Your social media handle, is it eatfellowhumans or eatfellowhumans with a comma?
2: It's it's the latter with the comma. Way back in the day, when I was just a uh, a lowly waiter, I felt as <laughs> though my main job was to get people to eat and, and stop beating around the bush. Just eat, fellow humans. Come on, like this is it. And so I also said, wow, like that's interesting because without the appropriate punctuation, it, it could really mean quite the opposite. That just seemed to be very funny to me as like a uh, I don't know twenty five year old or whenever Twitter came out. <laughs> And so although I have matured past that level of humor, I, I couldn't give up the handle. People just liked it. And I've, I've done little like Twitter polls and whatnot to see like, hey, should I change it? Should I grow and mature as an adult? And people are like, no, nah, we love it. Keep it.
1: <laughs> I'm glad we got that out of the way. By the way, you are a fellow podcaster as well. I know you recently launched your own podcast where you kind of explore the things that really make life great in your quest to become the ultimate bomb vivant. So what does that look like for you exactly?
2: Okay, yeah. So the podcast is called uh, Warner's World of Wonders. And the idea is I've encountered things in life that I think are spectacular, that make my life great, that I don't necessarily know that everyone shares the same affinity for. We basically do a deep dive with other people who feel the same way. And then someone who might not necessarily feel the same way, but happens to be an expert in the field it's not just food. It's everything. Everything from the sensation of cold sheets to the smell of gardenia to this really obscure book called McTeague by Frank Norris to any other number of things that I just happen to wonder, like, why is this resonating with me? And why is my life better because of it? Our latest episode was on Bee Gees, uh, you know, staying alive, staying alive. And it was just a really weird coincidence to me that I kind of discovered the Bee Gees during peak pandemic. And then the HBO documentary came out the same year. And I was like, why is all of this coming together kind of at at the same time? And so we kind of worked to unravel the mysteries of the why do certain things make life great? Like we can all say arugula is great. It's definitely the, you know, the king of the uh, washed refrigerated greens. But why?
1: But why? So peppery. (laughs) You also did an entire episode on Aged Gouda, which uh, I I appreciate. I'm curious what you prefer, recording a a podcast episode or filming uh, on set for an episode of television?
2: They're very different things. And I'm sorry to give a a diplomatic answer. But the thing that I love about a set is the, the coalescence of people and ideas. And, you know, there are so many people involved to make something happen. And when it all comes together and everyone's kind of in the zone, the feeling is super magical. But that being said, you don't necessarily develop a super deep relationship with anyone there. You, you really are like, thank you for doing a great job. You've done a great job. Let's all do a great job and move along. But when you have a podcast, generally, you're really trying to get to some nitty gritty or trying to figure out what's going on in the world or with someone. And it's a little bit more laser focused. So shotgun approach of excellence versus laser approach of excellence. They're both excellent. And I love them all.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good assessment. I approve of, of the diplomatic answer. So, well, you are no stranger to Food Network, but definitely a rebel of the bunch in, in terms of the fact that, you know, you're a self-taught chef, no formal culinary training. You tend to break the rules. You cook outside the box. What sparked this love of cooking and just learning and exploring?
2: I've been a career waiter. I started out on the kind of front of house path when I was about 15 or so, whatever the legal working age was, I was like chomping at the bit because at that time I just liked, you know, being a kid with money. But I also really liked to eat and I, I liked learning about food. Then I just kind of kept chasing higher checks and with higher checks comes more food knowledge. And I just went from restaurant to restaurant, always trying to like max out my knowledge and be the best uh, waiter that I could be. And I found that once you get to a certain point of waiting tables, you really have to know just as much as anyone who's in the back of house cooking. So when a guest says, what is braising, you need to be able to tell them that's what braising is. And then once you know the definition, it's really not that difficult to like figure out the technical aspect of it. Once I learned what braising was, then I went home from the shift and braised something. And so that kind of unlocked the idea that maybe I could cook too. And then... You know, I would just kind of casually entertain friends. I was through pretty nice parties, and I don't know. That's pretty much it. But I, I think given that I didn't have the the rigorous schooling that I think a lot of chefs do, or even a foodie really a, a foodie upbringing, my, my parents always let me explore whatever I wanted to. But we still had the you know the crispy onions on top of the green canned green beans with the mushroom. At Absolutely.
1: I mean, I still put those on. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, and I've learned now later in life, there's no point in trying to gourmetify that. Like forget your crispy shallots, you know, forget your Ari you know, just put the glop with the glop with the crispy, bake it off, you know?
1: <laughs> well, as you started kind of learning and experimenting, what, what kind of resources did you turn to, to kind of learn those, those techniques, those skills that you, as you mentioned, you didn't have the formal training for?
2: you know, so this was not, I'm not saying pre-internet, but it was maybe pre-content before everybody was like a content or information factory where, you know, people would just put their life and information on YouTube for free. So I had to like buy a book. And I want to say the book that kind of blew the lid off of it was maybe Food Lover's Companion. Then there's one, I think, called The Flavor Bible. And uh, of course, uh, Harold McGee's on food and cooking. That was kind of the trio, I think, that really unlocked it. And then just studying menus and and being curious and asking questions. And I'm very fortunate to have worked with a lot of chefs that didn't mind having a a front of house person incessantly bugging them because that's that's who I am. You know, I worked at a sushi (laughs) restaurant when I was 18, ended up managing it before I could legally drink. That was simply because I had a great relationship with the head chef. He valued my curiosity. And I think because he was a Japanese guy, And I think a lot of people were just like, sushi man, sushi man. And I was like, well, there's a lot more to your culture than sushi. And there's also a lot more to you than what you produce. We then have become lifelong friends and he's helped me explore the world. And I hope that I've helped him explore the world as well.
1: Do you remember some of the first recipes or or dishes that you really kind of learned to perfect
2: Uh, Yeah, easily. So it's a weird cut. It's called lamb breast or lamb belly. It's essentially a a segment of lamb rib cage with a lot of fat on it. And we found it at a big box store who didn't pay to be in this uh, podcast. So they won't (laughs) be named. We found this cut and it was super cheap and we were scrappy restaurant people. He kind of taught us like, uh, hey man, just simple salt, pepper, slow, low it just came out the whole house was smelling like lamb and we were just eating like Kings. And then we had this huge discussion on what is the King of fats, which like, if you go through the list of all the animal fats, man, you could really get into a fight. Like forget is a hot dog a sandwich. I want to talk about fats.
1: All right. Well, what is, what is the best fat?
2: I don't know. You know, (laughs) um, it's tough. And I, I, I think like life and the context and the season might change, but I'm up there with, I think it's either beef fat or, or tuna fat. And I, it's tough because tuna fat you, is difficult to like isolate. You can't necessarily like have a block of it and spread it on toast. But there's something about beef fat and the way it, like I made this beef ramen that I've given to people, even one of the producers on Grocery Games, and everybody does this thing with their lips where they're like like, they just had uh, the best chapstick of their life.
1: (laughs) I mean, it it is a dual purpose in that, in that sense. It it probably is the best chapstick. What are some of the experiences that have shaped this very unique culinary point of view that you have now?
2: That Japanese restaurant. I also worked at a Brasserie in my hometown, which my hometown was very fortunate to have at the time. I learned little, little things like amuse-bouche, for example. And you know, when you're, I guess, 16, and learning about moose bouche And I, I would talk to everyone. For some reason, everyone there treated me like an adult, which was very strange. And so I was like 16 and had a recipe for mojitos, you know, just in my back pocket, just in case, you know. Just like, in
1: case, never know.
2: Yeah. And I they just kind of blew the roof off of the like idea of, you know, you don't necessarily have to be older, experienced experienced to want to live a good life through food. When I was in the Spelling Bee in the eighth grade, it was an all expenses paid trip to D.C., which was only like 70 miles away growing up. But I was like, all expenses, huh? So they paid for me to go to uh, Michel Richard's Le Citronelle And I had Squab and a volavant for the first time. And uh, I was, you know, in the eighth grade and that was just my jam. And so, I mean, there have been countless, countless things. But in general, those are probably the radioactive spiders, the origin stories, if you will.
1: So you are currently living in South Dakota with your wife, Brooke. Uh, What brought you to South Dakota from Brooklyn?
2: Uh, Kind of a long story. So we were living in Brooklyn, but not doing a whole lot of the living. We were kind of just working and grinding away. We got a wild hair and decided to uh, live in an RV for a year. And um, the RV... (laughs) Oh my God, amazing. Yeah, I, I don't know. This is just how life works in our family, I guess. And so we needed to fix up the RV, but to do that, we needed a driveway. And the only driveway we could think of is Brooke's parents in South Dakota, because obviously Brooklyn doesn't have driveways, at least Mm -hmm. not 30 foot ones. So uh, we sold a lot of our material things and moved some others into storage and kind of set sail. And it was this really wild experience. And then uh, to do some of the repairs to the RV, it took a little bit. So we just kind of bopped around my current hometown, Rapid City, over the summer and we kind of got into a nice little routine. It's very nice for hiking and for exploring. And I can drive 30 miles in one direction and bye-bye, cell service and just disappear. But at the same time, you know, we have big box stores and you can be in and out in 10 minutes versus in New York. It's kind of an all-day affair. And then they don't have what you're looking for.
1: And then you have to carry it home.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you have to carry it home on the train. We set sail after that. And then we bopped around the country kind of dating cities. And ultimately, we made a complete lap and we're like, well, we could do this again or we could just kind of plant roots. And so we found a cute little house as seen on Triple <laughs> G Delivery. That's it. And we were just like, ah, we like it here. So we'll stay here. But like we always reserved the right. Like we still have the RV, it's an escape pod, you know, just in case, I don't know, things get weird. We get run out of town. You know, it's still kind of the Wild West here, you know?
1: When you were living in the RV, what was your favorite part about that lifestyle?
2: So I'm going to say the connection to nature, but I don't just mean like birds and fauna and trees and gators and whatnot. Nature involves humans, too. And so when I say nature, I mean the courteous guy at the gas station in Arkansas or (laughs) the fact that you have to, you know, downshift and use the transmission as a brake when you're scaling some or descending some massive hill. And you just start to understand in a very different way the world around you. When you have 40 feet of metal behind you and that's all of your surroundings or you get stuck in mud. Mud in Brooklyn is one thing. Mud in the middle of nowhere off the grid in Utah is a very, very different thing. Your eyes kind of just get wider and you perceive a little bit more and and you think a little bit more cautiously and optimistically about the world around you. So that's kind of it. It's just a different lens for seeing things. And it's a freaking great lens.
1: I love that. How many how many states did you guys hit?
2: Oh, I don't know, but we did a, over 10,000 miles. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't have the number on states, though. It was a lot.
1: Did you do a lot of cooking in the RV, or were you kind of doing a little diners, drive-ins, and dives?
2: Um, it was a little of both, but the coolest thing is, is that I wrote an entire cookbook in the RV, and it was for a device. And my thesis was, if I can make an entire cookbook in an RV using literally only, only this device, only one outlet, then assuredly... You can use this device in your home with multiple outlets and multiple tools and shelter from the elements.
1: How is the food scene uh, there in South Dakota?
2: It's good. It's growing. It needs a little stoking. And I think that a lot of restaurateurs sell themselves short and think like, oh, people won't eat this. And I'm guilty of that too. When we opened a ramen shop, I just thought it would be a sleepy little thing that Brooke and I would manage and little mom and pop place. Like day one, we're like overrun. We are a little limited in terms of the supplies we can get here just because we're somewhat remote. But other than that, I I mean, yeah, we're doing great out here. The craft beer scene's out of control. Why ramen? Brooke and I are big-time Japanophiles. We met in a Japanese restaurant. We both worked in ramen shops. Brooke managed a, a ramen group. And when we were moved here to South Dakota, we kind of were trying to look around and see what is the most viable and responsible cuisine that we could make. When we realized just how much agriculture and livestock there is here. Combining that with our affinity for Japanese food and ingredient, we were like, I think we can do this. Can we do this? And then we found a supplier for a great noodle. And that was it. You know, it's just kind of making do with what we have.
1: If I were to to visit, what was like the top thing I would have to try on the menu?
2: Well, you have to have two visits. Okay. (laughs) Because like our firstborn is the beef bone ramen. And we are definitely in cattle country here. And yeah, I would say they're probably under Maybe 20 places that do a gyukotsu or beef bone ramen in America, and probably under 100 in the world. But then on your second visit, you would have the bison bone ramen, which, mm. as far as I know, we are the only ones in the world.
1: That's super cool. How did that process go when you guys were kind of developing that menu? <laughs> a lot of ramen.
2: <laughs> it, it was like any, any other thing. So, oddly enough, we established in a, a bakery. And this bakery has no gas or ventilation. And when you think about boiling soup, generally think about gas burners and you know cooking things for a long period of time over a very high flame. But uh, we took a gamble that we could get it done in an oven because heat is heat. And mm-hmm. so believe it or not, it's actually quite efficient because an oven has a thermostat and auto shut off once the temperature gets too hot. So we're actually able to control the boil of the broth very easily. Yeah, we're baking ramen in an old bakery. <laughs> Such a weird thing to say. But if anyone was going to do it, you know, he's got two thumbs and pointing at himself right now.
1: (laughs) I love it. It's very on brand for sure. I mean, obviously, you've mentioned it, just Japanese culture kind of has this reoccurring theme in your life. You know, you have the, the ramen shop, you met your wife in a Japanese restaurant, you worked in them, you have your handcrafted cooking knives on your website. What are some of your favorite elements of the Japanese culture from your visits to Japan or just, you know, learning about it?
2: Attention to detail is, uh, I think, maybe the number one thing and that spreads across the board. And, you know, I, I don't like to speak in like generalized statements necessarily like that, but I'll just give you an example that sometimes it, you go to a 7 and you'll ask where the restroom is and they will walk you to it, open the door. It's a heated toilet seat and you feel like, oh man, this is a relief. You know, this is wow. great. I've been walking all day. I get to sit. I feel comfortable. And then you'll purchase something and then they'll put it in a bag, seal the bag, hand you the bag with two hands because like one is it's too casual. I was on a train that had velvet seats. You know, in New York, that would be <laughs> demolished in what, under 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably the number one thing. And being a career waiter, I got to a point where the goal was not just to provide what people needed, but it was to anticipate what they needed to make them happy, make them better, leave them more fulfilled than when they came in. That's kind of tough because, you know, if they're not giving it up, you know, if they're not saying, hey, I need this, this and this and, uh, you, you know, that you have to crack the nut. And I think oftentimes that in our day in and day out in America, sometimes we, we forget courtesy is just like this incredibly infectious thing and, and politeness and kindness is just something crazy. I, I lost a DSLR camera on there on a bullet train in Japan and somehow it came back to me.
1: Certainly, you're no stranger to owning a restaurant. You, ha- you had do or dine in Brooklyn for several years as well. What are some things you learned about owning a restaurant that no one told you about?
2: There's a lot of numbers involved. I hate numbers. I hate, I hate paperwork. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of paperwork involved. There's a lot of regulation. It's not a lemonade stand. I knew that a, a grease trap existed, but uh, I was never that intimate with it. And I would tell <laughs> any to like, get intimate with a grease trap and then see if you, steal, if you still feel like you want to own a restaurant. <laughs> Other than that, you know, I don't know. I've been in them for so long that I kind of understood most of the ins and outs. And ultimately, I think if you have a, a quality product at a fair price that's served with genuine enthusiasm, you will be all right.
1: Do you miss New York City and Brooklyn?
2: Oh, so very much.
1: What do you miss the most?
2: The ability to... I, you know, literally have a roulette wheel of options, all of which are fantastic. And, you know, spin that and go.
1: Selfish question over here. What are some of your favorite Japanese spots in New York City?
2: Ichiran, Chuko, Sake Bar Hagi, Decibel, Azaz. I mean, there are so many Kajitsu if it's still open. I think Kajitsu is closing this year, so get there fast. There are so many, you know, like one of my best experiences as like a new recruit in Food Network was having a, a business lunch at Morimoto <laughs> in Chelsea Market. Oh my gosh! I mean, and there there are so many. There are so many things that Osaka yuji UG Ramen. There are so many places, you know. I I could go on and on, but in general, pretty much anywhere, <laughs> you know. I just anywhere, yeah. They they're also good. Those are just that come to my head first, you know.
1: All right. Well, hopefully, everybody was taking notes. I know I was. I mentioned kind of your reputation as this rule breaker. You have a cookbook, The Laws of Cooking and How to Break Them, where you really do encourage a lot of improvisation in the kitchen. You kind of lay out flavor laws with familiar foods and then kind of apply it to more playful recipes. Can you give us some examples of a common flavor law and then one of your recipes?
2: So, the first chapter in the book is something I think that almost everyone in the American palate has had, unless you're allergic, of course which is peanut butter and jelly. And so the idea of peanut butter and jelly is that you have uh, this rich, concentrated, creamy thing, this slightly sweet, slightly sour thing, and then something to spread it on. So uh, what is pizza, if not rich, creamy cheese, slightly sweet, slightly sour tomato sauce, and then something to spread it on? Now, what is a lot of Italian cooking other than that kind of beautiful three-note combo? I make an all purpose kind of wing recipe that involves this sort of sweet, sour and richness. You have butter, you have jam, you mix it together, steep a little habanero or whatever your pepper of choice is and uh, apply it to wings. And so fat fruit, something is spread it on is generally like a great rule and you can't screw it up. <laughs> I mean, think about like every cheese board, fat fruit, something is spread it on. Think about every mm. pate or foie gras dish. Fat fruit, something to spread it on. There's also like the law of general sows, which is like heat and sweet. It takes a minute to kind of break it down. But at the same time, it's all kind of normal. Uh, another one is like a law of uh, bagel and lox, which deals with the idea of smoke and like where does smoke come into play? And so, generally, with smoke, you—if you look at the bagel and locks—you have like onion. So, any sort of sulfury allium thing is going to work with smoky. You have caper. So, generally, something pickled and briny is going to work with smoky. You have cream cheese. So, like cheesy or rich. You know. Now we've unlocked the entire
1: Arby's menu. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a lot of sense when you break it down and kind of simplify it like that. What would you say your motto is when it comes to cooking?
2: Don't burn the toast. <laughs> you can't unburn toast, okay? This is it. Is You can scrape mm-hmm. it off. You can sand it. You could power wash it. But the idea is the aroma is there. And you can't uncook something. And when something mm-hmm. is past its optimal cooking, you can't undo it. So that's really the only thing. I, I think you can actually correct a lot of flavor mistakes or flavor issues or textural problems. But when something is toasted, and I mean beyond toasted... <laughs> There's no going back. I look at that as like also for life.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. You can push it, but if you push it too far, it's burnt. It's your toast. Yeah, your toast. <laughs>
1: no, that's a good one because I, every time I, I try to toast things in the oven, I, I forget and I have to do it again. It's a good motto for actual cooking. And like you said, life as well. I know the foreword was written by Alton Brown, who was your mentor on Food Network Star. What does it mean to you to have his guidance and encouragement?
2: I was kind of a different person back then because I was, like I said, this kind of scrappy waiter who kind of walked into a restaurant and mm, played chef. And then when I got on Food Network Star, I was like, oh, I can't play anymore. But I think Alton understood that I had some really good bones in me. And I think he saw that I was kind of building the me around these bones. And I think he kind of liked what he saw. And at one point he said, I'm just going to get out of your way, man. Just like keep doing it. And I think that's the kind of mentorship that I needed.
1: I'll even refer to you as the son he never had. And obviously, you were the winner there of season eight with him as your mentor. Can you just kind of walk us through the experience as you progressed through that competition and in the end, what you were able to learn and apply to make you that winner?
2: Well, so Food Network Star is incredibly tough. It's not for the average person you're not rooting for the person next to you. And that's a weird thing. You know, you you wish them all the best and you love them, but it's a competition. We're all there to win. I like to, in general, play for fun and play for finesse. I like a power move here and there, but I'm not necessarily the guy who has to score the winning goal and take home the trophy and that sort of thing. But once I I started getting far enough in the competition, I realized, like, there's no point in playing around here. There's no point in kind of winging it. You got to win this thing. When Alt and I are standing there at the end, And we've had this bond and I formed a bond with my teammates. You know, the big reveal, it was actually like a big reveal about myself. Like maybe you you are okay at what you do or maybe you're better than okay Mm -hmm. at what you do. And I I guess I just never really thought about it like that. I was always just kind of playing games or just trying to get to the next tip or table or menu item or something like that. It was not, hey, maybe you should reevaluate your life course and pivot into something and share what you have. So, whoa, (laughs) you know, like... (laughs) rarely in anyone's life do you have this, like, tournament-based epiphany, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah, like, the prize was, you know, not necessarily just being on the the team of Food Network. The prize was like, hey, you get a new self. Cool. (laughs) Whoa.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What was the most challenging part, do you think, of that competition?
2: Being away from friends and family you're in, at least back in that era of reality TV production, we were in pretty much isolation. Unless there was an emergency, you weren't calling home. And uh, it was kind of a pain. We were shooting... Maybe eight blocks from my restaurant. And, uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I could like practically smell it. You know what I mean? Uh, so that was tough. But other than that, you know, you grow to like these people and ultimately, like, you're just like, oh, it's a real shame that at the end of this challenge, somebody's going to go home. It could be you, it could be me. Like, After a while, you're just like, all right, well, let's just do our best and no hard feelings, pal.
1: Do you still keep in touch with any of those people from your season?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, Marty Duncan on the absolute regular. Uh, Marty Duncan is one of the greatest people on earth. She actually has a a podcast as well, which is pretty fantastic. I was on it. A lot of other Food Network talent has been on it. So you got to check that out. Yeah, you know, we always check in here and there. Maybe we'll be in the same circuit. We'll show up at a food fest or be in the same town or something like that.
1: Up next, Justin shares his favorite on-set, behind-the-scenes moments, and he reveals the best part of being a member of the Food Network family.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
1: I mean, you're no stranger to any Food Network programming and and Guy's Grocery Games. We get to see you back in Flavortown Market in an upcoming episode from this new season. Do you remember the the first time you met Guy?
2: Oh, absolutely. I want to say it was on episode five, perhaps, of Food Network Star season eight, available on Discovery (laughs) Plus.
1: And what was that experience like?
2: Oddly enough, it was a Halloween challenge and I was somehow picked to go first for this like Halloween dish. We had to make like a spooky dish. So, of course, I made edible sardine skeletons, duh, as one does. Obviously. And uh, somehow, like, I didn't get the memo that I was supposed to kick this off. I thought Guy would be like, hey, I'm Guy, and I'm here to talk to you about blah, blah, blah. And so there was this, like, awkward silence of me, like, waiting for Guy to kick it off. And But everyone's like, I think Justin's intimidated by Guy. And, like, N- I mean, yes, and kind of no. You know, he's, like, been in my living room more than almost anyone else. But, <laughs> you know, at the same time, yeah, it was just kind of a, a rocky start. But then... uh I caught up with him somewhere, some event we were at. And he's like, hey, man, like, you'd probably be decent on grocery games. You want to come check it out? And I was like, yeah, sure, guy. Why not?
1: What is your favorite part about filming guys' grocery games?
2: I think it's the camaraderie that we just all have. It's a really great team. You know, it's not just judges and guy. It's it's everyone. It, every person is recognized, you know, as a valid human being that has a name. You know, it's not just like lighting, do this, Gaff. do that. You know, sometimes, maybe, you know, in emergency situations. But... In general, like everybody knows everybody and everybody wants everyone to have a great day and do a good job. And it feels so easy to make magic. And when magic just happens organically and it doesn't have to be cultivated, that's what happens when you have a ton of really talented people all in one place.
1: How does a shoot day for Guy's Grocery Games compare to you know, shooting an episode of Guy's Ranch Kitchen, which I know you've been involved in uh, as well?
2: So they're both about two episodes per day. You know, when you're at the ranch, the ranch is a very different setting. So waking up in the morning is like, wake up, go for a hike with guy, you know, survey the peacocks <laughs> and goats, shower, get in hair and makeup and do your thing. Guys, grocery games is more like wake up, panic, take a shower, <laughs> um, put your running shoes on. And, like, go through your mind and try and figure out, like, what have you not made in the more than 100 episodes you've been on in the show? <laughs> you know, and, like, how are you going to conquer it? Now, is this in that aisle or that aisle? You know, it's you don't know what's going to happen. So any plans you make is like walking upstairs. More plans, more stairs. And then once there is the reveal, that's how many stairs you're going to fall down.
1: <laughs> what are some of your go-to grocery staples when you're grocery shopping, not on Guys Grocery Games?
2: I always find myself buying soba noodles. I love cold soba for some reason. It's just like a I can't think of what to eat. I'm going to eat that and I will always love it forever. At home I eat a lot more for sustaining myself sort of purposes, mechanical purposes, practical purposes if you will. I've got a great mushroom guy, a lot of lion's mane mushrooms. I don't know.
1: All right. I like that. Well, I mean you've you've worked with Guy also as a floor reporter on TOC which is probably one of the most intense shows I've ever watched. You have a ton of responsibility as the floor reporter. It's up to you and your counterpart, Simon Majumdar, to present one chef's dish to the judges because it is a fully blind judging. So it's up to you to basically present this and really represent it well. It seems like a lot of pressure. How do you kind of manage that responsibility? And and what's the toughest part?
2: Well, I I think it's actually not that tough for me because I've always been a waiter from some chef who's going to beat me up. Not really, but... (laughs) Some chef who's going to be very unhappy with me if I misrepresent the dish. I tell you that the toughest thing is in the brief amount of time that we have to kind of gameplay how we're going to present the dish is convincing the chef to either edit the verbiage or to change the idea. I'll give you an example. Michael Voltaggio made this incredible, this like juiced butternut squash barbecue sauce. But I was like, chef, if you call that barbecue sauce, man, that's pretty thin sauce, you're going to get hit. What about barbecue jus? And he's like, bingo. (laughs) And then so I'm like, yeah, it's a company by a barbecue jus. And they're like, barbecue jus? Great idea. Or for example, one time a certain chef was required to use a a multitude of ingredients, but kind of only used one. And I was like, let's not even talk about it then. Let's just say it's a blankety blank. And if the judges can figure it out and they can point out all of the ingredients that you didn't use, then don't worry about it but like that's that's where being a career waiter helps you know the more information you give someone isn't necessarily better for the dish so when you're articulating a dish and whether it's a thing like tournament of champions or if you're just in a restaurant every word you say is a promise to the guest if you don't deliver on those promises the guest or the judge is going to be able to kind of find fault in it so i think it's generally better to Under promise and let the mystery be. The main thing is that, you know, we just want to be succinct and we want to be on the same page. And that was often my job when I was a high end waiter, is, you know, oftentimes the chef will say, this is a fantasy, do this, that, and the other. And it's like, chef, can we call it fruit (laughs) salad?
1: You you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think that the blind judging really sets the show apart from, you know, other competition shows. That and obviously the randomizer. Do you think that this is the toughest food competition format on television?
2: Yes you kind of have no one but yourself to blame. If someone tells you four things to do, which is kind of what the randomizer does, and then the fifth thing is the time in which to do it, and you can't execute well enough or enough to beat the person next to you, then you probably need to work on that. Like, I hate to say it, but that's the thing, and I think that's what makes the wins so great and the losses so rough, is because it's kind of just a reflection of how multifaceted you are as a chef. And I think that if you go back and watch season one and season two, You'll find that the, the chefs who are more Swiss army knife and the chefs who can kind of adapt and are less like, I only cook this way. They tend to go further. I mean, look at Darnell, the Kingslayer, you know, mm-hmm. Darnell Ferguson. I mean, that guy's never really seen a challenge that he can't wrap his mind around.
1: If you ever competed, who would you want to go up against or not go up against?
2: You know who I'd want to go up against? Rest his soul is Carl Ruiz. He and I had this sort of great relationship where I, he would win all the time in grocery games. But as far as I know, anytime I went head to head with him, I beat him. And so I know that he somewhere is still harboring that grudge. <laughs> and I think Tournament of Champions would be a, a, a great place for, you know, just to say for once and for all, you know. Yeah. And then uh, who would I not want to compete against is, uh, oh, uh, you know, I'm going to say the the current champ, Manit she's crafty, man. And the devil's in the details and she's deeply acquainted. You know, there's always one, like one move where when I watch her cook, I'm like, brilliant. She doesn't beat you over the head with brilliance. She's just like, if you look closely enough, you'll see that I'm brilliant. And that (laughs) is the kind of thing that I think anyone who eats her food can, can see, you know, it's not so esoteric or out there that you really have to struggle or like get out any sort of book to understand the brilliance of it. She's just like, yeah, it's in there. You don't have to look too hard. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so charming.
1: She is so charming. We had her on right after she won and she was so lovely, but she's so competitive also. So it's the sweetness, but also like don't ever underestimate her, I think, is is definitely the message that everybody learned during that last season. What is your favorite part about being part of this Food Network family?
2: I never went to college, so I imagine it's kind of like a long form college. You know, like Rocco Dispirito texted me yesterday needing advice for some ramen project he has. And I'm like, hey, I got you covered, bro. And Eric Greenspan will like text, like, hey, dude, can I use this emulsifier? And then I might say to like Jet Tila, hey, Jet, have you ever used this sort of appliance before? And so it just kind of feels like the commons or something where, Mm -hmm. you know, we're all doing our own thing. And, you know, someone else is playing hacky sack. But in general, (laughs) if we walk up to each other, it's like, hey, man, what's up? Oh, yeah, you're struggling with that? Cool. Let me help you out. Or at least in my experience, I've done this. And I don't know, maybe college is not like that. But in general, it just kind of feels like that. It's somewhere between College Commons and WWF, you know, and I don't mean (laughs) that it's everything that you see on Food Network is absolutely real. But, you know, like Marcel Vigneron and I and Richard Blaze or, you know, all of the kind of sciency nerdy chefs or whatever people want to call it. We all know that we're always going to be put head to head in things for the rest of our lives because it's what the people want to see. And like we have no hard feelings and hang out all the time. But, you know, when it comes time to do battle... We're going to lay it on thick, you know? <laughs> and I, th- I think that's kind of It's like we all know that we're like in this fantastic world where we all kind of play our own part and nobody ever yucks anyone else's yum. And we all ultimately just kind of want each other to have a great life and great experience. And it's always a very, dude, that's great. Good for you, man. Congrats. And there's not a whole lot of like, you should have done this or, you know, you know we're, we all just kind of function as allies.
1: I love that. This has been... Wildly entertaining and informative. I feel like a a smarter person after having talked to you, but we are going to finish things off with some rapid fire questions. And then we have one final question we want to hit you with at the very end. So favorite flavor combination.
2: Scallop and vanilla.
1: Oh, okay. Most underrated snack food.
2: Anything in the processed meat jerky family. Mm. You know, we really, I think people only eat jerky when they're like traveling. And then I think that people only eat like charcuterie and stuff when it's fancy time. And really, I think we should just all be eating like, you know, cured meats regularly. Like you need a quick protein pop. Bang. You know, if you Mm -hmm. had a deli slicer at home and, and could just like shave off a few things of salami, you probably wouldn't be snacking as hard, you know?
1: All right. I like that. Favorite food city. Osaka. Kitchen tool you cannot live without.
2: Offset spatula.
1: Food related guilty pleasure.
2: Mm, anything that rolls
1: <laughs> what, what's an example
2: uh you know the like when you're at a convenience store and they'll have like a multitude of like semi-grotesque sausages or like rolling tacos that are they call like certain things you know they will uh, yeah, 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 yeah. anything that's on that rolling thing and now they've, <laughs> you now want they've got, that yeah now they've got burger now they've got like buffalo wings i've even seen tamales in some parts of the the country okay which i don't understand how you can wrap a thing in a corn husk and then wrap it in plastic and have it roll on a thing and still be good. Uh, Yeah. Anything that rolls.
1: Okay. Anything that rolls. I like that. Uh, go to weeknight meal, probably hot pot. If you could have any superpower, what would it be?
2: Lucid dreaming.
1: In the spirit of your podcast, what are some things making your life great lately?
2: Natural wines, marrow bones, um, Caesar salads. I know that like that's kind of like a everyday sort of thing. But I, I just had like a very like incredibly lightly dressed Caesar salad the other day. It was like 89 degrees out. And I was like, this rules. <laughs> you know, you're like, thank goodness that we have this, you know. Yeah. And it's like, I know it's just romaine, you know, but the romaine wasn't chopped. It was hand torn. And I was like, someone put a lot of thought and effort into this very simple thing. But at the same time, like, I've also had Caesar salads where I'm like, what are you doing with the tomatoes, guys? Come on, <laughs> out of here, you know. I didn't ask for this.
1: I mean, I think a really good Caesar salad can really bring you a lot of joy. Before we let you go, we have one final question we ask everybody on the podcast, and that is what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So we want to hear your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner, dessert. There are no rules. You can, you know, supersonic jet. You can time travel, spend absurd amounts of money. Whatever you want to do, it is your day.
2: Breakfast. We are, of course, hitting, like, uh, New York delicatessen. We're going to have some uh, smoked fishes and niches and all sorts Mm -hmm. of other things. Bagels, bialis, etc.
1: Anyone in particular? Any spot in particular?
2: I mean, the obvious is is Kosars and Russ and Daughters. But, you know, we'll just consume them all. If I have infinite appetite, we'll do all of those You do a little,
1: like, smorgasbord.
2: Then I think we'll have, like... uh, I'm always curious about what the idea of a sort of, like, chuck wagon breakfast would look like, you know, in like, I don't know, 1880s or something. So bang, now we're enjoying a chuck wagon thing with, you know, probably like eggs and like gritty coffee and maybe some beans or something. But I feel like that would be just like a very restorative meal. If we're really going to take this to the max, you know, I'm I'm hoping that we have the appropriate context for all of this. So... Mm-hmm. You know, when we're enjoying the, the bagels and lox and whatnot, we're slightly hungover. Not too hungover, but slightly hungover. <laughs> you know, when we're enjoying the breakfast, we've slept under the, the stars and okay. we've heard the coyotes howling. And then we're going to jet to Fukuoka to the original Ichiran ramen shop and they're open 24 hours. So for a third breakfast, we're going to hit that and we're going to feel as though we're ready to face a huge day of uh, global travel for lunch. You know, lunch is like a weird meal for me because lunch is always very utilitarian. It's not often one of the most pleasurable meals. But I'll go to a restaurant that uh, I used to work at that I still to this day truly love, which is the MoMA, Uh, in the MoMA, it's called the Modern. And it's gonna be a wintry day there with freshly fallen snow. And a lot of people aren't gonna be eating lunch there. It'll be pretty low key and quiet, but we'll be able to observe all of the sculptures in the sculpture garden with a light crest of snow. This is a spring snow, by the way, where it's like some one of those last in-between sorts of things. And we'll have a uh, three-course meal. We won't offer the tasting menu because that's a lot. And we've got a lot more to do this day. <laughs> and uh, we'll probably have, uh, I forget what the fish was, but it was served with a green tomato chutney. And uh, there was just something about this weird green tomato chutney. And then we'll probably have, you know, for the third course, we'll go back to fall, but it's still the snow. And we'll have the Concord Grape Vacheran, which is just a miraculous thing. I love the idea that snow can be like a early fall thing or a late spring thing. Or um, a dead, dead of
1: winter thing as well. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But I think the most poetics are, are when it catches you out uh, like off guard. Mm-hmm. Or when you see like a, a crocus pop up through the uh, snow. It's like a very cool thing. Like life's changing. Get ready. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what well, we're only on lunch one there. Lunch two... Maybe we go for a, a sushi snack just at this little little spot that I just love called uh, Taro in uh, Brooklyn. We'll probably just have some monkfish liver, ankimo, uh, maybe a little Tsunamono salad. I just love those things. We might even need to have a mid-afternoon snack and perhaps a beverage. What's a good mid-afternoon snack? Oh, the Halal guys on uh, 53rd. I just love them. For some sort of beverage, I don't know where we have it, but let's find a nice glass of natural wine. Okay. Yeah. And then for dinner... There's just so many fantastic dinners that I've, I've had and that life is good. Well, regardless, we'll have the little tiny sushi rice ball that I had at Masa uh, that's rolled in honey and truffle. We'll probably have some chicken from Jonathan Waxman. I mean, we got to take a trip to Flavortown, right? So we'll pop by the ranch <laughs> and just like let, let Guy do whatever he's doing with his steaks and giant meat hooks and stuff okay. like that. Then we'll have late night yakitori in Omoide Yokocho in Tokyo. We'll go for drinks at Golden Guy, also in the same sort of area in Shinjuku. And then, I mean, I guess we need dessert for all of this somewhere. Dessert's really <laughs> tough for me. Ideally, we need pie. But okay. The question is, where do we get pie? So perhaps we'll travel back in time to Robicelli's, and they had a uh, miso apple pie that was really quite nice, that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I think that's it. Let's have a couple espressos and uh, maybe a nice Steve. <laughs>
1: I mean, you might need a couple of digestives after all of that. I mean, it sounds like a perfect food day. It sounds very Justin. I appreciate you being so descriptive. Thank you so much for taking the time and telling us your stories and and learning more about you.
2: Thank you. I am so happy that I'm here and a part of all of this. You know, I'm eternally grateful to be part of the Food Network fam. And I. it's just so crazy that, you know, the work that we do is appreciated by many. And I'm very thankful for that.
1: All right, we really do need to do a second episode so I can hear more about that year in the RV. You can catch more of Justin on a new episode of Guys Grocery Games on Wednesday, October 20th at 9, 8 Central on Food Network. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We do love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. Real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs.
0: Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different.
1: And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water,